Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to another episode of the show that explores our place in time. This week's episode is a special recording I made on tour in Australia back in February at Earth Frequency Festival, hanging out with my good friend Simon Eugler of TravelAlchemy.com. Really cool guy. And I'm glad to have him on the show because as far as historical context is concerned and leaving artifacts of possible significance to future digital archaeologists, then having a conversation about the nature of travel at this particular moment in human evolution is a subject of great curiosity. There's that wonderful Louis C.K. rant on Conan O'Brien about how we complain about flight delays, but a hundred years ago, it would have taken us weeks to get across the country or months, and it would have been a whole different group of people by the time you get there. Births and deaths, etc. You know, this notion of the collapse of time and space and how in another few decades, it'll probably only take us hours to get from one side of the planet to another. It'll certainly seem a lot quicker to get from place to place as our internet connection speeds get faster and we're able to project ourselves into other environments digitally a lot more believably than we currently do. To the extent that we consider telepresence a form of astral projection, that we consider the movement of data through fiber optic cable to be the movement of the extended self into the world wide web then questions of travel will remain of primary importance even as we find that we're able to go anywhere we want virtually from the safety of our own wally couches or whatever also and critically there's no rolling back the collision of cultures and societies that occurs as the inevitable consequence of our accelerating transportation technologies so in this massive mix-up of human traditions and perspectives, a new sense of who we are to one another, a sense of how to relate to strangers, is becoming more and more critical. We're all being asked to level up and become planetary cosmopolitan citizens now. So what does that look like? Well, luckily, Simon, as a travel guide, has already chewed this philosophical sandwich for us. And it's with great pleasure that I welcome him onto the show. But first, a reminder to new listeners that Future Fossils has a Facebook group if you'd like to join our discussion. And if you'd like to support Future Fossils and our project to create a digital time capsule for the conveyance of wisdom across generations and help cement our reputation as good ancestors, then take a look at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where I have set up a whole bunch of fun rewards for people who give some small amount, $2, $5 a month to the podcast People like Rasha Ponciel. Thank you, Rasha, for supporting Future Fossils. If you can't support it monetarily, that's fine. I'm super glad that you're listening to the show. Please tell your friends. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or whatever it is that you enjoy. So with that, let's move sideways through the time crystal back to February 2017. 
when I am in Queensland, Australia, having an awesome conversation with Simon Eugler at Earth Frequency Festival. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield on site at Earth Frequency Festival here with my old friend Simon Eugler, who I have not seen in six years almost. And he has totally transformed since our last encounter and is now out there in the world kicking ass and having adventures. And it just seemed totally appropriate to get him on the show because of the fabulous work that he is doing in the world and the relevance of his work to the bigger picture of the transformations we are undergoing as a species. But I will let him do the introduction. So yeah, thank you, Simon, for joining us. <laughs> wow. Michael, yeah, it's uh, fantastic to, to see you again and um, witness your mutual unfolding and and everything you've been doing man so yeah thank you and yeah man just um so much love and support and gratitude for what you bring into the world and, and the art that you make and conversations that you steward and and hippies that you wrangle continuously <laughs> uh so yeah um thank you yeah um, well why don't you because we already had our little catch-up moment you know, uh, and that would have been a fabulous thing to get on tape, but we can't always. <laughs> so for the purposes of our posterity, uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about what you're doing professionally now and how you got into that line of work? Sure. Yeah. Um, so for the past roughly two years, a uh, year and a half, really kind of in the thick of it, um, been leading um, experiential education journeys abroad all over the world for young adults, so primarily 18 to 23-year-olds, working with organizations like National Geographic and um, an organization based in Portland called Carpe Diem Education, uh, primarily doing um, service-based learning, adventure learning. Um, It's kind of put in the catch-all phrase of experiential education. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess at this point I've led programs in nine different countries um, and worked with a total of about 56 students just in this year alone. And yeah, I've taken my students to places in East Africa, um, to South America, to the South Pacific, um, visiting indigenous communities visiting permaculture sites, visiting adventure hotspots like the Great Barrier Reef or um, safaris. So kind of a mixture of things. You know, there's always a social give back sort of service aspect to these trips. And there's always a um, spirituality, self-growth, self-discovery aspect. Um, And really, if I'm going to be really honest about what I'm inspired about with this work and what I see the purpose of this work to be and where I see this work going is um, initiation. So I've been a facilitator of initiatory experiences for young adults who unwittingly get themselves <laughs> uh, entrusted to me for three months at a time and I'll uh, you know, guide them through the journeys of 
becoming a human being. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I like that you said the other night is having to express to these people that you're not their parents, that you're not their school teacher, that you occupy a unique role in their lives that doesn't necessarily resemble the kind of t- templates for authority that they've encountered in the past and that you get to discover with them this new sense of relationship and so it's not it's interesting to me that you're not just saying this is how it's going to be but that you're actually involving them in a a process of mutual discovery about the kind of initiatory relationship that they're going to have with you so I'm, I'm curious to hear you say a little bit more about that and about the challenges and the opportunities of working outside of the admittedly very limited spectrum of predefined social encounters and relationships that's necessary in some respects in order to have a legitimate liminality for initiation. Mm. Yeah, that's a really key issue. Is um, <laughs> I don't I don't want to be a uh, a parent or a cop or a babysitter. You know, a lot of these trips, the majority of the trips that I've done have been um, zero tolerance substance-free trips, so that means there's a really strict rule, um, you know, for the students of not being able to, to drink alcohol or um, take any anything that would be classified as, you know, a drug or anything like that. Um, I think that's kind of a, a different conversation, but, but, but part of that, uh, an outgrowth of that is me being confronted with the choice of do I want to be a cop or not? Do I want to kind of have this authoritative position with these students? And and the truth is that no, like I, I've never wanted to um, express my authority because I have a problem with authority figures and uh, don't don't really respond well to people asserting their authority. Even in the airport when I, you know, I'm being told to take off my shoes, I'm like, well, screw you too, man. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so it's a really interesting thing, Michael. It's it's hard. I don't think I have, like, the answer for that. Um, but what I can say is that um, I think one of the most insightful experiences I've had in this regard is inviting my students who are 18, who are, you know, young people to step into a place of their own empowerment and authority and saying, like, look, I'm not going to do these things for you. Uh, I'm not going to control you so how do you want to play like and some people inevitably choose to step up and kind of are naturally able to sort of step into a place of leadership or mutual respect for everyone in the group for themselves for me Um, and you know of course there's always the people who want to uh, or who who rather are just patterned in a in a way where they, they will have problems with with the flow of the group or problems with me or problems in general because of who because of where they come from so yeah it's a really dynamic thing dealing with um authority and and leadership this whole thing you know it's it's like i know that you and i talked about being a facilitator for these rites of passage but is this the way that these trips are actually explicitly framed? Because I kind of, I don't see National Geographic being like, come on, an initiatory (laughs) voyage. No, no, no. 
hippie from Oregon. <laughs> you know, he'll he will turn your child into an activated warrior. You know, but that's not. But yeah. I mean, but that's that's something that sort of seems to seems to emerge naturally out of these interactions. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: is that um, Michael Mead, who is um, a teacher and mythologist and storyteller, who's based up in Washington, says that. Um, you know, the human soul will seek out initiation whether we know what it's doing or not. So it's kind of this ingrained process that we can't really help. It's going to happen one way or another. So um, I think I think there's something almost archetypal and profound about leaving your home, country of origin, about leaving your comfort zone and, and traveling out into the world. Just Let's just start there. I mean, that's archetypally initiation 101 Joseph Campbell hero's journey leaving the known you know there's a bit of resistance in there of like oh I'm not the one don't I can't do this and it's like actually you are so let's go mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think um, the truth honestly Michael is that no these programs that I've been working with um, definitely don't consciously strive to become initiatory trips but the the exciting part is that we live in a time where there's opportunities and horizons and um, so that's something I'm actually actively working towards is um, starting my own organization that that does put the initiatory aspect of these things at the forefront and how did you find yourself initiated into this in the first place like you know where where did it weave you you know the course of the threads of destiny how did you end up finding yourself in this position i mean we we talked about this a little bit the other night just that you know you spent a lot of time traveling and kind of developed some expertise but what was that path for you yeah well um interesting that we are here in australia recording this at earth frequency festival um because I can basically trace the trajectory of my life. I came to Australia first in 2009, about seven and a half years ago, with a grant um, from my university to do anthropological research in an Aboriginal um, area in the Northern Territory here. And I can actually trace the exact moment, the exact conversation, where I was leaving Arnhem Land, which was the area um, I I was living in, and saying goodbyes to people in the community saying goodbyes to this man who was kind of my adopted uncle and before he left he clasped me on the shoulder and said you know I've never met another white person like you before and um, that experience affected me so profoundly that it basically sent me on this trajectory of understanding what cultural exchange means from a place of transformation and healing um, for basically every day since then. Um, and so, you know, in the years since first coming to Australia, I've journeyed to um, the Middle East, to East and Southern Africa, to South America, Central America, the South Pacific, engaging with indigenous people and people from vastly different cultures and worldviews and um, trying to understand that question of what does it mean to to truly listen and, and, and build a healing relationship with people from another world, really. Mm. We were just out here with Mark Healy, and, you know, Mark gave 
a presentation on the decolonizing of festival culture. And, you know, it's very important, uh, I would agree, and I think you would agree, that we understand this entire beautiful phenomenon within the context of our privilege, you know, regardless of race, the fact that we have the affluence to gather in this way, you know, that we have the freedom to gather in this way. And that I think a lot of the conversation uh, around white guilt is like misplaced. And Mark's really good about pointing out that it's more about the acknowledging that our privilege provides us with the opportunity to assist those that are less privileged than ourselves. So, I mean, that's, that's clearly something that is like very alive for you. And I'm curious how you came to that understanding in your travels, but then also, is it even something that you're able to impress upon these groups of kids within the context of these guided tours where you're not writing the program? You know, is this something that's, that's uh, actively a part of the work that you're doing in that space? Or if it's not, how are you finding ways to express that? I mean, that's like a five-part question, but you can take it from any yeah. angle you like. No, um, it's a huge question, actually. You, yeah, okay. It's raining right it's now, raining so we're having, we're having a podcast in the rain, yeah. which is quite fine, yeah. actually. No, I like it. It's a pleasant change of pace from the heat. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, to answer that question, man, it's 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 a big one. And I think, again, it goes back to my time as a 20-year-old here in Australia, um, living in an Aboriginal community and realizing that um, being so overwhelmed with the amount of injustice and problems that exist in Indigenous life, um, certainly here in Australia and certainly back home in the United States, uh, anyone who's been to a reservation can tell you that... Um, there's a lot of problems. And I think what occurred to me as a 20-year-old here in Aboriginal Australia was that I can't do anything at all to fix these situations or problems. And that actually um, really coming to terms with my own kind of liberal conditioning of wanting to save the world and wanting to kind of all these things that were raised to think in, in you know, in liberal America these days and really having to let that all go um, and understanding that all I can do all I can do, me as an individual is um, build authentic relationships with people and so that realization has informed a lot of my work and a lot of what I'm teaching now and what I was teaching earlier today here at a Frequency and what I write about on my website which is Right Relationship um, and how to, what does right relationship mean? What does it look like? What are some of the tools and practices that actually help us achieve it? Um, it's not easy. It's super dynamic. It takes a lot of time, but it is possible, right? Um, but one thing right relationship isn't is wanting to come in and fix. Mm. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's a massive difference between citizen diplomacy and mission work, for example. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. And and so, yeah, I mean, really, I guess in a sense, you know, you really do have the opportunity when you're taking groups of people on, on travel like this to instill in them a sense of what it means to be a guest, you know, what it means to be a stranger in a strange land and how to how to walk with respect on 
land that someone else has a longer, deeper relationship with than you do. We don't even, you know, this was something that came up in Mark's panel, this issue of most places now have suffered multiple waves of colonialization, including from peoples that claim to be, you know, that, that call themselves First Nations. And yet, nonetheless, you know, it's, it's pedantic and perhaps, like, defeating to get into an argument over, well, you guys also technically migrated here once upon a time. It's like, well, no, 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 no. There's a difference between, you know, moving in with the Walmart and living on the land for 15,000 years. And when you put it in line with that, it's like, it, it really is just a matter of respecting someone else's home no matter what, right? I mean, that's, that's what we're really driving at here. Yeah. And we had to move because it was raining harder now so we are just as we were talking about the importance of being a good guest in someone else's place we're now <laughs> migrated into the camp of strangers <laughs> where we've asked permission to hang out under their tarp so at any rate yeah i'm you know we don't we don't have to like stay on this particular issue of your work but i am fascinated by this issue of citizen diplomacy especially in an era where in general it seems easier than it's ever been to, to travel and yet the intermingling of cultures that travel facilitates creates uh, all sorts of issues of cultural appropriation and people not realizing that they're treading over in the invisible lines and you know how it is that we can live together when we really are all coming from such different cultural contexts and how can we do this in a way that is that is uh, respectful and is there even you know a template that works across the world and across all of these different intercultural exchanges for how to engage one another respectfully so what are your thoughts on yeah, that yeah yeah well i mean i can only really speak from my experience but and what i've what's worked for me right what okay. and what's worked for me is not is not going to work for everyone in every situation but um that statement of, you know, I've never met a white person like you before, or being in places like the Middle East where there's so much um, tension between governments and, and local populations, especially with people from the United States, um, showing up and, and actually making genuine relationships with people, I believe is a profoundly significant and important thing to do. And I've had experiences of people saying, you know, I've never met an American like you before. Mm. Um, and yeah, what I teach in my workshops and, and talks um, and I've written about also is um, is um, basically what I am you know calling the five tools or principles of right relationship. Okay. These are tools that I have seen work, work miracles for me in my life and have talked about with my students abroad traveling. And um, so I can go through them real quickly. And the first one is offerings of respect which is basically, um, you know, in many, many Native American traditions, especially the Northwest Coast, there's a huge culture of gifting. Um, Lewis Hyde has this incredible book called The Gift, which I know um, you know his work. Um, basically, gift-giving uh, is kind of this, this massively metaphorical action we can do, which signifies that we're not here to take. It's kind of this putting your, your intention out there and saying, I'm not here to continue the extractionist colonial history I'm actually I, I, I want to give so whatever that is a skill um, a material object um, uh, a lot of people have a lot of problems around money and things but I think 
giving money is a perfectly appropriate thing to give when you're visiting uh, someone's land or home or property or whatever it is. And if you don't have any of that, there's plenty of skills that we all possess as people from the first world, let's say, going to a, a place that is developing or, or yet to be developed, where we have these skills in technology, in understanding things like, geez, even creating a Facebook profile, helping someone do that. And if we don't feel like we have anything to give, which I doubt, we can give the gift of silence, which is the second principle in, in this kind of five-principle framework. Um, basically, shut up and listen. Show up um, in a good way and sit down and, and really just be quiet and, and really try to embody a honorable silence, which I think is is increasingly difficult for people in our in our culture to do but really just sit there and things will happen um and ask if you feel it's appropriate to ask questions um, but really be prepared to listen the third uh principle here is um know your history know the stories of the land um, do as much research as you can about where you're going where you are even um learning the indigenous names of the mountains and rivers and plants of your area can make a huge impact if you want to engage with, say, indigenous people from your area. Or if you want to go somewhere else in the world, uh, another country, you know, learn as much indigenous or native language as you can, even if it's a colonial language like Spanish that is the lingua franca today. Like, if you're going to go to South America, learn Spanish or try and, and attempt to speak it, even though it's uncomfortable. You know, it's like leaving that comfort zone of what's convenient for you, but actually it really goes a long way. Even if you just try and fumble and fail, people really appreciate it. Except maybe in France, right? Except in France, of course, right. So don't try that in France. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, so that was actually number four, which is love, love of language. You know, um, Nelson Mandela said when you speak to a man in a language he understands, you speak to his head when you speak to a man in his own language, you speak to his heart. So it's really that sense of honoring um, the mystery that is language. Um, there's tons of incredible resources and teachers out there that talk about language. I'm sure, Michael, you can talk about just as many as I can think of, but um, The Spell of the Sensuous is one of my favorite books of all time by David Abram, which is about language and um, indigenous consciousness. Um, highly, highly recommended and then the fifth um, principle of right relationship is um, sharing from the heart, which basically just means be vulnerable and be real and be authentic. Um, share where you come from. Share about your family. Share about the kind of music you like. Cook your own comfort food for people in a cross-cultural context. Share the intimate moments, you know, these, these moments of, of humanity that, that really make us what we are as a species, you know? Food music, stories, family like connect on that level it's not just about um, <laughs> what can I learn from you you know it's uh, really sharing what it, what it means to be a human hmm. so I've had this thought before you know I heard somewhere that with a tourist you can tell the difference between a tourist and a, and a local by the fact that the tourists are looking up that typically when you get used to a place then you sort of forget the architecture and you no longer walk through a landscape with this sense of novelty and wonder 
and you kind of get stuck in that human cultural layer at eye level, you know, where you're just interacting with the people around you. And so I've always, you know, at, at first, because my father worked in the travel industry for many, many years, and I never really liked the idea of tourism in the sense of it being exactly what you're, you know, you're talking about here as extractive, you know, get in a bus and go look at this thing and then take a bunch of pictures, take your picture because the million pictures online aren't good enough. You right. definitely need to remember that. Buy a keychain, go stay in a fancy hotel. And yet, when I heard this thing about tourists looking up and it being this sense of awe, that it's about an injection of wonder and curiosity into a person's life, it really changed the way that I think about the things that motivate people to travel in the first place. And it, it softened my, my sense of this sort of uh, resistance to being considered a tourist, even when I am one, even when I obviously am one. And, you know, more generally when I'm speaking and I'm trying to encourage and uh, reawaken a sense of wonder in people about their own lives, I'm, I'm reminded of Rolf Potts. I don't know, if his yeah, yeah. fantastic travel writing Absolutely. and his book Vagabonding, a guide to the uncommon art of long-term world travel, in which he says that, you know, after you've been out on the road or, you know, whatever you want to call it, when you've been out in the world for months or years at a time and you come back to your hometown and you're transformed and your sight has transformed and you, you are now a traveler and you see your home with new eyes... And it became this thing that he warns his readers about. He says, you know, you are likely to feel like an alien in your own place, but there, but it's actually an opportunity to embrace the familiarity of what was once your daily life with this fresh curiosity and, and awe and approach wherever you might be, you know, in his case, I think it was Kansas, with a sense of this this travelers this tourists looking up being like wow look at this place this is bizarre what is the history here you know how come i never really thought about that when i was here so for me it's like how much a part of that i mean clearly you you've gone in and out and you have a sense of place but like i'm sure that that's also become a part of your your life at home in the states now that you do this so frequently and that what is your relationship to that sense of curiosity and the way that that motivates consciously or unconsciously the kind of experiences people are seeking out in life in general and where it sits for you and all of that yeah absolutely well um you know there's plenty of of cliche quotes available online about travel but um i think my favorite cliche quote about travel is from the legendary arab explorer ibn battuta who said that um, travel will leave you speechless and then turn you into a storyteller. <laughs> Which um, I've found to be infinitely true. Um, and we had to move again because a party showed up at the camp and luckily it stopped raining, but now there's cicadas. Anyway, we were, <laughs> we were talking about, you mentioned Ibn Battuta. Ibn Battuta. Yeah. Yes. Travel will yeah. leave you speechless and then turn you into a storyteller. One of my favorite cliche quotes about travel, and I feel like what it really speaks to is this 
notion that um, the anthropologist Victor Turner talked about, um, who kind of actually pioneered some of the terminology around rites of passage and, and being in a liminal state. He was one of the guys in anthropology that really brought that word liminal and liminal, liminality into the foray of anthropology. Um, Victor Turner called being in a liminal state, he called it being betwixt and between. So this is kind of this state of having your foot in two different worlds of, of really no longer fully being you and being something else that you are yet to discover. Um, so it's really describing the initiatory state. And initiate means to start, you know? So once you start on the initiatory path, it just continues mm. uh, for your whole life. And eventually part of that is initiating others. Um, but yeah, I mean, to answer the question, Michael, it's really like, I think the answer is like, we can choose to tell whatever kind of stories we want these days. Because we're all, you know, we're all creators of story. Um, the internet and, and social media has made it so that we can each really take an active role in, in crafting the stories and crafting the, the sort of narratives that we want to be putting out into the world. You know, we can share content about how the world is, is burning down and imploding, or we can share content about how the world is actually um, being created, and we can, we can be a, play a part in that. Mm. Yeah, on that note, actually, something that's been coming up for me listening to you speak is the sense in which we're living through something like a planetary initiation right now, that in the sense that we're discovering our adulthood as a species, we're moving from, you know, if you look over the last few hundred years, moving from very local and traditionally oriented cultures to very global or at least post-national and future or vision-oriented. It seems to be the general shift as it seems that you know our change around the world is accelerating. The emphasis is, you know, in part on conserving what traditions we have, but in light of this shift in emphasis and attention to the future. And specifically this shift from this a state of stability to a state of, if you want to call it stability, it's like a gyroscopic stability. It's like things are moving so fast that you have to find your center and just spin fast enough to keep up. And then you end up being the eye of the storm. And so, it, you know, this, this notion of liminality seems to really speak to where we are as a species, but not not even necessarily temporarily, but like moving into a state of sort of permanent liminality. And so, you know, I wonder what lessons you think the experience of world travel has for people in navigating an age of turbulence and transformation and what it is that we can learn from casting ourselves out on these, these heroic adventures you know, and, and moving into this, this uh, space between stories, or at least between the story that we know and the stories of other cultures that remain unfamiliar to us. And, you know, what, what fertile area there is to be explored there and, and what lessons you think we can take and apply to the, this, the situation of our species as a whole. Yeah, so, again, quite a massive question. <laughs> 
I'll do my best. You can to, always uh, just tell me to fuck off. <laughs> I'll, also. Do my, I'll do my best to uh, to answer, you know, if I can. But uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think that um, for me, to put it lightly and simply, travel has been an initiatory path. I think one of the biggest reasons that that it has been is because of changing these stories that that a lot of us are sort of given um, and swallow un, unquestioningly um, growing up wherever we grow up in the family that we grow up in in the community we, go, we, we grow up in um, stories like people aren't to be trusted or, or Africa is dangerous or uh, you know everyone in South America is on cocaine or kind of any of these ridiculous narratives that affect our perception of the world um, you know, most of which are quite wrong. And, um, I mean, I can think back to an experience in Tanzania of showing up in the middle of the country with, it was like everything that could go wrong traveling solo in a place like Africa went wrong. I had no money. I had no, I had one contact in the town I was showing up in whose phone happened to be out of commission. Um, my phone credit ran out and I didn't know how to recharge it because I couldn't really speak Swahili um, and here I am in the middle of the country in this dusty little savannah town with no one I know in a thousand miles and no money and, and no language skills and nothing basically I was I was completely uh, fucked for a better for lack of a better word and and I kind of walked out of this bus station, which, if you've ever been in a bus station in the developing world, it's kind of like a, like a lion's den. It's just like, sort of like a arena of prey and predator, and it's kind of like where the, the, the most, uh, desperate and, and also possibly dangerous people kind of congregate. So I extracted myself from this bus station and walked across the dusty streets and leaned up against this car, and, which was a taxi, who I was kind of convincing this taxi driver, oh, maybe I'll, you know, get a ride, but really I just wanted to be left alone. And in, in the space of sitting there, um, you know, this young guy who must have been about 18 or 20, young Tanzanian man walks up to me and says, ah, you are in trouble. Let me help you. And I, I looked at him, and I looked at his body language, and I looked at his face, and I looked at how old he was, and I said, okay. And so we went, and uh, I won't recount the whole story here, but it's written down on my website if anyone wants to find it. But, I mean, that experience proved to me beyond a doubt that, that humans are essentially good. And that seems like a very trivial, trivial thing to come away with, but actually, knowing that people across the world are good for the most part, and for the most part want to help you, I think it's one of the most um, powerful and transformative messages that we can we can experience and share. Because if you turn on, you know, the news, I don't know why you do that these days, but if you were to turn on CNN, you would you would get you know, just barraged with information about how dangerous and terrible the world is. So, you know, travel can instill experiences in your life that actually prove the complete opposite of that. Mm. And a moment ago when we were migrating once again <laughs> in our 
seemingly eternal quest to find a decent place to record this conversation, I, you know, I brought up my own identification with my father's side of the family as Ashkenazi Jew in the sense of the wandering Jew, you know, the sense of a person without a home. And, you know, to a lot of people listening to this show, I imagine, you know, there is a sense of rootlessness because in America anyway, the trend is to leave home and establish something in a place where you don't really have any connections and develop a new community somewhere else. And then in general also, you know, that may be the residue of being a culture of immigrants that have come from all over the world and or people that were displaced by colonial cultures. And we're also, by and large, except for those that have really fought to maintain their indigenous traditions, most people alive today in the communities that I know do not really have very deep roots in their own lineage in their own ethnicity in the you know the ancient roots of their culture and and it's this sense of homelessness or placelessness you know so many of my american friends don't even consider themselves americans mm. you know and so it's a weird, that's a hard one yeah so i wonder about this and and you know how this is you know, you mentioned that you have a sort of an identification with the wandering Jew archetype. Yeah. And so that longing for home and that longing to be, as you know, as Mark Healy talked about in his shop again, uh, to be a person of place. You know, I, I wonder how you reconcile that with, with being a professional traveler and uh, how that shows up for you in your life. Yeah, well... Um... We're in the same boat, my friend. Um, my on my father's side is also Ashkenazi Jew, and, and that's the tradition I was raised in. And I guess technically my first initiation, uh, I had a bar mitzvah. What can I say? So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I I really do resonate with that. And um, I think when I was first kind of starting to walk this path, I read a book called The Songlines by Bruce Chatwin. Um, which, if you've never read it, I highly recommend it. One of the best um, travel writers I think that's ever lived, Bruce Chatwin. Um, and in that book, you know, it's actually a story of coming to Australia and, and connecting with Aboriginal culture. So I was reading it as I was embarking on my own journey to do just that. And kind of throughout it, he kind of diverges from the storyline and goes into these sort of philosophical wanderings and he talks a lot about about the tradition of wandering and the traditions of all of the nomads and wanderers in the world and um, you know that word nomad has been really kind of uh, appropriated or reclaimed or sort of you know a lot of different communities have taken taken it and, and ran with it and um, you know to be honest I've actually never um, I've never felt a profound uprootedness, I think primarily because of various things like my childhood and my upbringing and coming from a place that I still identify strongly with, which is Oregon. Um, but at the same time, like, let's examine what that word nomad actually refers to. So this kind of idea that certain, you know, indigenous tribes, <clears throat> let's say the Australian Aboriginal people or the Tuareg of the Sahara, were these kind of uh, rootless wanderers 
who really had no possession of land or territory. Um, that is actually not true. Aboriginal people had a profound connection to the land and would migrate seasonally according to what food was available and where they were mythologically and sociologically allowed to inhabit. That's the songline matrix, which is a whole nother conversation. Um, you know, the Tuareg were, were merchants and traders who had their festivals and their gatherings throughout, you know, the Sahara region in West Africa. So they would return to these places of significance for things like festivals, for gatherings, for family events like marriages and, and rites of passage. So I don't know. For me in my life, it's kind of been this cycle of leaving and returning. And in the process, my sort of wanderings have created these little slices of home and community that I've discovered or been welcomed into along the way. And I think that's, yeah, really similar to, you know, the story of the wandering Jew of kind of being welcomed into places in various times of need and uh, kind of this quest for, for finally feeling at home. Mm. Well, I guess there's a, there's a, a yet another condition. You know, you've got tourism, you've got nomadism, and then among others, I would suggest we can include refugee status, you know, and I think that that's uh, obviously a very timely issue right now to put this in a, you know, a historical perspective that we're, you know, we're starting to see a massive global conversation about the responsibilities of various established communities, nations, governments, however you want to look at it, to these displaced peoples. And it really seems to be a profound challenge to the existing structures of the state and also, you know, the existing, you know, the, tr the existing traditions of these various places that are being forced to adapt to a massive influx of people that don't even necessarily want to be there. These people that have you know, that have been forcibly uprooted from their homelands and, you know, had to relocate as a matter of necessity. So I'm curious to know, in you know, in your case, you know, how you see that particular issue and, you know, whether, you know, how you imagine that as a, as a, as a species, as a planet, that, that human beings might find some grace, dignity, poise, compassion with this particular issue and with the, you know, the issue of feeling as though, you know, one displaced culture begets the displacement of another culture and, you know, how it's not just about traveling to another place with respect, but how it is that we can receive people with respect, you know, and, and how those two conversations might be related to one another. Yeah, <laughs> yet another large question, uh, but no, fair, fair enough. Um, I mean, what most immediately comes to mind is a, um, a, a group of musicians from Sierra Leone that I'm connected with and know personally called the Sierra Leone Refugee All-Stars, who are an incredible, incredible live reggae band from Sierra Leone, West Africa. Um, these guys 
raised each other, you know, basically a lot of their families were murdered in the Civil War in Sierra Leone, and um, they formed their band in a refugee camp in West Africa. And slowly but surely, things started working out for them, you know. I think on their first or second album, they have a song called Living Like a Refugee, which is kind of their manifesto, basically. And the first um, lyric of that song is, uh, when two elephants are fighting, the grass is going to suffer. Mm. And I think just having an awareness of, of what's actually going on that's causing these people to be displaced. Um, it's a beautiful song if, if, if you've never heard it. Um, so I think keeping that awareness of what, what's actually causing, causing you know, refugee status to be, a, to be an issue is really, really important. And, um, I mean, you know, there's so much I could say about that, but, but what's really coming to mind is just this idea of, you know, and this extends, I think, to all of our interactions with people. Of course, it's easier said than done, but especially with, with people from different backgrounds and countries, especially refugees, but keeping this, this little teaching in mind, which I can't remember where I heard this, but, um, you know, just remember that everyone you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. Yeah. But what if they're taking our jobs? <laughs> well, we're going to have to create new ones. <laughs> For ourselves. Mm. Empower ourselves to do what it is that we're each here on this earth to do. And I know uh, it's a very privileged thing to say, but... Um, it's the entrepreneurial spirit. It's the it's the hungry immigrant mentality. To quote um, this guy named David Deng Vu, who I heard speak in Thailand a few weeks ago. You know, he's an online entrepreneur who's crushing it. You know, this guy is like 30 years old, first generation Vietnamese immigrant whose parents came to the United States after the Vietnam War, and basically grew up in a family-run uh, sweatshop, to use his own words where they didn't have enough and you know he saw the kids playing with Game Boys growing up in the US and and asked his mom you know why can't I have one of those and she said not enough we don't have enough money um, and you know what I what I really took away from hearing David talk was saying you know uh, we gotta all of us we gotta adapt this hungry immigrant mentality mm. so I wonder how to adopt a hungry immigrant mentality in a way that is actually sustainable you know so much of the conversation around the entrepreneurial attitude is about identifying new niches that we can exploit you know new resources that we can extract and you know I, this is an increasingly serious question so the question that this brings up for me is just like how do we stay hungry uh, in a world where the increasing number of mouths to feed is becoming an increasingly urgent issue. How can we actually value and cultivate that kind of canny, clever, creative attitude in a way that's not merely just looking for new people to rip off or, yeah. you know, new resources that we can decimate? Because ultimately, you trace it back far enough as my friend Meow Meow was saying during Mark Healy's 
talk, he was saying, you trace it back far enough, and all of us are immigrants at some point. You know, all of us showed up here. I think there's something profoundly humbling in that respect to really reflect on the fact that we don't own our lives, that we're guests on this planet in whatever sense, you know, spiritually speaking. And in, in light of that, how can we turn and, and use that hunger in a way that actually allows us to act as better stewards or custodians rather than, to use a term I've been learning about lately, the, the watiko. Uh, yeah. the, you know, this, this hungry, yes. malevolent spirit that causes people to just consume endlessly, you know, that's so evident in our current climate yeah. of predatory capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Wetiko is real. Paul Levy, who's a, a teacher who lives in Portland, wrote an incredible book on Wetiko. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a known condition uh, from indigenous cultures around the world of, of this sort of malicious, demonic spirit that infects people's psyche. Um, I, I can't really claim to know too much about how to dispel that, but what I can say is... Um, just to speak to entrepreneurialism and kind of how to uh, continue to do good work and how to stay hungry, as you said, but but not ravenous. <laughs> I think yeah. I think I don't know. I I look to some of the leaders in the sort of entrepreneurial realm right now, leaders in the marketing and business realm, people like Seth Godin, who we were talking about, you know, a couple hours ago, who you know, I think who does come from the entrepreneurial sphere in the business world, but who's actually what he's really talking about is is cultivating and offering things that improve the lives of your fellow humans and what it really means to create something of value. You know, value is this term that's thrown around endlessly in sort of business entrepreneur worlds. And I think people like Seth Godin really have an enlightened view of what is valuable. So there are particular teachers and mentors and thinkers that are pretty active these days. Even Tim Ferriss, I think, is really on the tip of, of this kind of cutting-edge entrepreneurial world of, like, what is the actual end goal here? So I can't claim to be an a, a expert by any means in those realms, but I think, I think people like Seth Godin, Tim Ferriss... Chris Guillebeau is a guy in Portland who has some really interesting writing about entrepreneurialism. He wrote the $100 Startup and has an event in Portland every summer called the World Domination Summit. Yeah. Interesting title. Well, I mean, it's a good way to get people to come. Yeah. You know, it's right. sort of like Duncan Trussell talking about how, you know, so many people, so many men started out in yoga just to see oh, God. women in yoga pants. <laughs> And then they learned that there's like a spiritual dimension right. and that's actually that they this were sort actually of works. They were actually tricked into a, a life of spiritual practice by yoga ass. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's like just get them through the door. Yeah, just get them in, you yeah. know, with talk of world domination and yeah. then we'll teach them how to be responsible. Yeah. Yeah, but but that's really all to say that that I think there's a plenty of incredible resources out there in the entrepreneur world to create awesome awesome content and it's just about finding them but Seth Godin uh, Tim Ferriss Debbie Millman also from Design Matters podcast great places to start right on so what are you working on now now I mean like obviously at this very moment you're sitting on a cooler talking about <laughs> entrepreneurial 
stuff. But what's ahead for you on the horizon? Well, you know, I had the pleasure of giving my workshop here at Earth Frequency called The Alchemy of Travel, which is basically, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about today. Um, so that was really exciting. Um, I have a coaching practice I'm just launching now and just getting off the ground of working with people who, you know, want to go on an, on an initiatory journey, uh, whether if that's traveling abroad out in the world or staying at home and doing something here, but, but kind of... Um, stewarding people through that process you know no matter what age they are i think it's something we all need in our lives so um, yeah i'm working on that writing of course always trying to write more and yeah i am just as of very recently in the beginning stages of starting to build um, an organization to facilitate uh, experiential learning um, international education and initiatory experiences well, to take a step back then and to look at your work in the context of what you've inherited and what you will leave behind as a legacy after you're gone, I'm curious to know what questions you might have for the unborn future listeners of this podcast or like what messages you may wish to leave for them. That's a, that's a two-parter in whichever order you care to answer, mm. what would you say to people of the, the future, and then what would you ask? Jeez. <laughs> Just go in there, huh? Okay. You can sit there silently yeah, for 30 gonna, seconds, and I'll there. edit it out. Yeah, let's edit it out. All right, so that's a big question, and I'm going to answer it with another question and poem. It's 3.23 in the morning, and I'm awake because my great-great-grandchildren won't let me sleep. My great-great-grandchildren ask me in dreams, what did you do while the planet was plundered? What did you do when the earth was unraveling? Surely you did something. When the seasons started failing, as the mammals reptiles, birds were all dying? Did you fill the streets with protest when democracy was stolen? What did you do once you knew? And that's a poem by who? And that is a poem called The Hieroglyphic Stairway by Drew Dillinger. Mm. And that's all I got. A fine injunction, sir. A fine injunction. So, I guess we can end it there. Where, where can people find you and your work and uh, sign on to follow you on a crazy adventure? Indeed. Indeed. Well, you can find me on my website called Travel Alchemy. You can type that into the Google machine and it'll pop up as numero uno. Or you can just write it in manually, you know, old-fashioned internet style, travel-alchemy.com. You can do the Instagram thing if you do that. I like to do that at travel underscore alchemy and if you go to my website and join my email list you will get a free beautifully designed pdf which is actually my published article from the book re-inhabiting the village which is essentially my alchemy of travel workshop in a narrative text form so if you've seen that workshop if you saw it here at earth frequency and you just need it just log on sign on to my email list and you will get a free copy of that fantastic well 
thank you for allowing me to sideload you partially into this digital museum and uh, may this one day be inscribed on a quartz tablet and survive the next gamma burst that wipes out all life on this planet to be eventually discovered by whatever evolves to replace us. <laughs> one, one can only hope. One can only hope. <laughs> it's been great, man. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast, Simon Eugler. Yes, Michael. Thank you very much, man. Much love to you, my friend. Travel safe. Adios. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Future Fossils and leave us a review. It really helps us get these conversations into the ears of other people who will appreciate and benefit from them. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Michael Garfield. Be good to yourselves and have a beautiful century.